Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was planning a suite of episodes about driverless cars, including the history of developing them, the challenges we face in implementing them, the potential benefits that autonomous vehicles could have, and how long it might be before we see truly driverless cars deployed on a wide-scale basis. Also, whether or not they'll hit the road before they're ready. Now today, we're going to start that journey by talking about a time when the idea of driverless cars was mostly science fiction. Also, I think it's important to understand that the development of self-driving cars is not a linear story with a solid narrative. It's not A leads to B leads to C. A lot of people have worked on developing the technology independently, sometimes from very different perspectives and philosophies, but all heading toward a common goal. These projects can sometimes overlap each other in time without having any direct connection between them. So you could have independent studies happening throughout the world. So I'm just going to cover some of the big, really important ones. But just know there were a lot of people working on this at various times throughout our history. Uh, I'm going to stick as close to a chronological timeline as I can But it will involve jumping around a little bit in time just because otherwise I'd be saying, meanwhile, blah, blah, blah was happening. And then so-and-so was doing this. And it would just turn into a really hackneyed kind of like radio mystery. I don't want that to happen. So picking a starting point is actually pretty darn tricky too because the technology of autonomous cars spans lots of different fields. You you could go into all sorts of technologies and talk about the development and how the evolution of those technologies eventually found their way into autonomous cars. And if I dug too deep in that rabbit hole, this series would last maybe 30 episodes. We'd be talking about the development of the automobile. We'd be talking about development of cameras. I kind of like how Wired did it in a piece that was published in 2016 titled, quote, A Brief History of Autonomous Vehicle Technology, end quote. And as that name suggests, that article went beyond self-driving cars. And the first item on that list actually dates all the way back to 1500 or thereabouts. And a famous turtle named Leonardo. I'm sorry, Tari Tari is telling me that's That's the wrong Leonardo. Leonardo was not actually a turtle, but apparently some sort of renowned Renaissance artist and proto-scientist. Okay, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. All right. I was was way off base there. Thanks, Tari. Anyway, the story of his invention comes to us courtesy of the Codex Atlanticus Folio 812R, in which da Vinci describes the creation of a cart that would use springs and gears. The springs would store energy and the gears and the cogs would drive the wheels and steering mechanisms so that this cart, once wound up and quote-unquote programmed, could travel and steer on its own power. So you would change these settings around and that would allow the cart to not just travel across a a distance, but also turn left or right, depending upon the settings that you had selected. I imagine this was largely done through various 
gears that once it hit, hit a certain point of its revolution, it would engage the steering mechanism. But honestly, I don't know the full details. Uh, if Da Vinci ever built one of these for realsies, the working model did not survive the passage of time. But modern enthusiasts have attempted to recreate this self-driving cart, which we now believe was intended for use in theatrical productions. It wasn't meant to do practical work on, like, manual labor or anything like that. It was meant to be part of a show that you would have this cart go across perhaps as an effect. Maybe it's carrying some sort of piece of scenery or an actor or something. But da Vinci's drawings and designs were not step-by-step instructions. And so any recreation of this invention has to be done with a healthy dose of interpretation on the part of the builders. They have to start kind of filling in the gaps and making, you know, best guesses. But some people, such as the staff at Wired, point to this as an early example of a vehicle that can drive itself. Though, to be fair, da Vinci's design required some humans to preset the device so that it would do what it was supposed to do. So you couldn't just you know, tell the cart, I need you to cross upstage left. You would actually have to, quote unquote, program it. Now, no discussion about the early days of driverless cars would be complete without acknowledging the accomplishments of someone known as Francis P. Houdina. He is credited in various articles as being an electrical engineer for the army. And once he left the service, he founded a company called the Houdina Radio Control Company. I'll have more to say about Francis in a second, but let's get to the heart of the matter as far as autonomous cars go. Back in 1925, the Houdina Radio Control Company engaged in a major publicity stunt. It happened on July 27th, 1925, when a car dubbed the Linrican Wonder, though sometimes it is credited as the American Wonder, roamed the streets of New York City without a driver behind the wheel. In fact, there was no one in the car whatsoever. There was someone standing on the sideboard of the car, the, the running board, so they were perched on the outside where they could reach in and grab the wheel. But no one was actually sitting in the driver's seat. At least, and no one was apparently in control, at least not directly behind the wheel. But as the name of the company would indicate, the Linrican Wonder was a radio-controlled car, like a toy RC car. It's just, instead of it being a toy, it was a full-sized automobile. Circuits connecting to motors would control the movements of the gear shift, the accelerator, the brakes, the steering wheel. Actual control of the vehicle came from an apparatus inside a following car. So you'd have a car operated by a, a regular human driver sitting in the driver's seat. In the passenger seat would be the operator for the radio-controlled car that would travel in front of them. So the car was not truly driverless because the driver did exist. It's just the driver was in another vehicle. While researching this episode, I found a New York Times article that described the event, and it doesn't sound like it was a complete success from that article, these are quotes. A loose housing around the shaft to the steering wheel in the radio car caused the uncertain course as the procession got underway. 
as John Alexander of the Houdina Company, riding in the second car, applied the radio waves, the directing apparatus attached to the shaft in the other automobile failed to grasp it properly. As a result, the radio car careened from left to right down Broadway, around Columbus Circle, and south on Fifth Avenue, almost running down two trucks and a milk wagon, which took to the curbs for safety. At 47th Street, Houdina lunged for the steering wheel, but could not prevent the car from crashing into the fender of an automobile filled with cameramen. It was at 43rd Street that a crash into a fire engine was barely averted. The police advised Houdina to postpone his experiments, but after the car had been driven up Broadway, it was once more operated by radio along Central Park drives. And uh, here's that bit about Francis Houdina I was mentioning earlier. You may have noticed that the name bears some passing resemblance to that of Harry Houdini, who was alive at that same time. He was the famous escape artist and magician. Now, according to the story, and there are at least some court documents to back this up, the post office was sometimes in the habit of delivering some of the mail meant for the Houdina company to Houdini the magician, including bills. And Houdini was not crazy about getting the bills from some other company, and he felt that it was encroaching upon his name, so he marched on over to the Houdina Radio Company headquarters, and a scuffle broke out after he started raising a fuss. The head of the office, a guy named George Young, filed charges against Houdini for disorderly conduct. But on the day that Houdini was to appear in court, Young failed to show up, and so all charges were dismissed. Now, there's a guy named Dean Carnegie who posted a few years ago that he had been contacted by the son of the person who called himself Francis Houdina and that Houdina was a pseudonym. And further, he says that the son of Houdina revealed that this scuffle was all just a publicity stunt, that Houdini had thought it up and they had all worked on it together. I do find it odd to have gone through all this trouble to take on a pseudonym, establish a company, create a demonstration of a radio-controlled car, and all in an effort to set up a big PR stunt with a magician. It seems to me like that's an awful lot of trouble to go through before you get to a point where you can hold this PR stunt. But I guess if someone was going to do it, it would be Houdini. I am highly skeptical that it was, in fact, a publicity stunt, only because, as I say, it's an awful lot of trouble to go through in order to do it, and it wouldn't necessarily bring good publicity, I would imagine. I just thought I would share the story because when I was doing the research, it kept popping up. Now, this Houdina radio-controlled vehicle was not the only one of its kind. There were some other people who also built full-size radio-controlled apparatus for cars. There were a few in the 20s and 30s. And in general, people would start calling these phantom cars because they appeared to be driven by an invisible phantom. But all of them were actually controlled by a remote driver. Those controls might not resemble those of a typical automobile, but they would end up controlling motors that would affect the automobile's uh, regular operations. And according to various accounts, some of these would be controlled by follow cars, sometimes by someone on the street, 
sometimes by someone following in a low-flying aircraft. It all just depends upon the account. In 1939, at the New York World's Fair, General Motors presented an exhibit called Futurama, and it was not an animated series by Matt Groening. It was something else. It was a vision of the far-off future of 1960. And the General Motors exhibit was a ride, essentially. Visitors would get on these cars, these chair cars, and be pulled through this exhibit where there was an enormous scale model. One part of this vision, which encompassed lots of different thoughts about the future, was the motorway of the future. And the vision included a sort of driver assist system in cars. They described an electromagnetic braking system that would engage if one car were to get too close to the car ahead of it. And cars would be traveling down lanes that would have raised walls on either side, sort of like guiding slots. So it sounded like GM was pretty sure cars would still be under the control of human beings, even in the far-off future world of 1960, but there would be some automated elements that would find their way into vehicle operation. And these days, we would say that that vision of the future was pretty much on the money, except for the part about it being 1960, because it took a little longer than that. Uh, Norman Bell Geddes, who designed this exhibit for General Motors, described a couple of possible methods for controlling traffic in the future using radio waves. And in one, he envisioned a system that would include numerous broadcast towers along the side of the road, and so cars would maintain contact with these broadcast towers. But in another version, he suggested the possibility of an electrical conductor embedded in the road itself for direct control, and that would be a method that a lot of different people would look into over the next few years. Today, we would say that such an enormous system is probably unlikely because of the huge investment it would require in infrastructure that would come along with it. But back in the 1930s, the U.S. highway system was still developing. It was still being built across the country. So it was probably seen as more of a possibility. After all, we were already connecting distant parts of the country to each other. So couldn't we just go to the extra effort to wire all of that in some way? I have more to say about this version of autonomous cars and how that evolved into uh, what we think of as an autonomous car today. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1936, a magazine called Modern Mechanics published an article about a different method for autonomous control of a vehicle. This version would include building cars that had special photocells on them to detect specific frequencies of light. The car itself would project this light. It would have a, a projector of some sort on the front of the car. And then in the road itself would be steel mirrors that could reflect the light back at the car and the photocells would pick up that light. The article pointed out that cars were already approaching the limits of human reflexes, this idea that we were starting to drive faster than we could react. Um, I guess, uh, you know, good old uh, uh, Jack of uh, the Pork Chop Express would say he never, he never drives faster than he can see. But we know that human reflexes have their limits. So this article mainly focused on the link between the photocells and the steering mechanism for the car. And that leaves a lot of questions unanswered, such as how the car would accelerate or brake. 
would there still be a human responsible for those operations? And the only thing that would be taken off the plate of the human driver is steering the car. One also wonders exactly how any one car would deal with the presence of other cars on the road that are similarly outfitted, right? So if you have a whole bunch of cars that use this technology and it's dependent upon light being reflected back at them, what happens when you start getting the signals from one car picked up by another? Or what happens if you're driving on a really sunny day or in really bad weather like fog or rain? But the point is people were already thinking about alternatives to radio controls even in the 30s. In 1953, Arthur Mack Barrett created what he called a driverless vehicle. He mounted a wire in the ceiling of a warehouse And he had a specially outfitted vehicle, in this case it was a towing tractor, that could follow that wire. And in later versions, he would bury the wire within the floor of a facility. And he called this system the Guide-O-Matic. Now, this was not meant for cars necessarily, but it was based on similar principles to some of the more sci-fi ideas that were proposed in the 1930s. So we started seeing it actually being put to use in the 50s. And in fact, this kind of system is still used to this day, but obviously with much more sophisticated equipment than what was available in the 50s. In 1958, Disney Studios produced a segment titled Magic Highway USA as part of the wonderful world of Disney. And the piece included some humorous gags about what the future of driving could be, uh, just based off jokes, really. But after that was a more measured look a more thoughtful look at the future of driving, still had some pretty far-out ideas in it. Now, it did include some practical stuff that has, in fact, come to pass. For example, the idea that signage is going to need to be larger and simpler so that motorists traveling at great speed can read and understand the road signs. In general, that did come to pass. It also predicted a road system that would be able to retain heat to keep it dry even in snowstorms. That has not happened. It does sound a lot like some of the smart road systems that were being peddled, no no pun intended, around a few years ago. You may remember those, the smart highways that were supposed to be made up of photocells, uh, solar cells essentially, and they could soak up light, generate electricity, and even be warmed so that snow and ice wouldn't form on them. Those have not really panned out so well, at least not in any widespread application. However, some of the other bits in that uh, Magic Highway section included predictions similar to GPS and rear-mounted cameras on cars, so we we do have those, although the one that was proposed in the piece was more of a a full-time rear-view camera, so instead of having a rear-view mirror, you would have a rear-view screen that you would consistently look to for uh, information about what's going on behind the car. Some of the other predictions did not pan out in any way, shape, or form, such as tunneling by atomic energy. Yeah, the actual special suggested that we use an enormous, like, atomic ray cannon, essentially, that would melt a hole through the side of a mountain when we needed to build a tunnel for a highway. That clearly has not happened. But the special then goes on to suggest that in the future, we'll get in our family vehicles and with a push of a few buttons, which in the special is depicted as physical slider controls, kind of like you would see on a a, stereo or a soundboard, we would select our destination, 
and an electronic system incorporating the vehicle and the road itself. So it would be a, a system that has both internal components in the car and external components in the environment would take care of everything else. So again, this vision hinges on that sort of smart highway concept, the idea that a lot of this work is being done by the infrastructure, not just the vehicle. Disney was just one company to promote this kind of idea. America's electric light and power companies ran an advertisement in the Saturday Evening Post in the 1950s with an illustration that showed the stereotypical 1950s American family depicted as it was at that time in the media, which is to say it was a white upper-class or upper-middle-class, at least, family. There was a father, mother, son, and daughter, so that kind of stereotypical family. All four of those family members are inside a car that has sort of like that big glass bubble kind of approach, sort of what you would see in something like the Jetsons, and they're all facing inward toward each other. A couple of them are playing dominoes. They're having conversation. No one's having to drive, right? The car itself is doing it. And the ad talks about how the electric age will lead to automation and efficiency in all sorts of areas, including stuff like flat TV screens and vehicles controlled by, quote, electronic devices embedded in the road, end quote. Now, keep in mind, again, this is in the post-World War II era. This is an era in which America's industry was a key component of national identity. It was part of what people thought of when they were asked the question, what is it to be American? Industry and innovation were very much really important components of that identity. And these weren't just concepts. These weren't just artists and advertisers saying, let's come up with some sort of wild idea. There were engineers who were actively building cars and test roads to work out the actual details. Joseph Bidwell and Lawrence Hofstad, who were researchers with General Motors, outfitted a 1958 Chevrolet with pickup coils to work with a road that had embedded electrical wire in it. The coils were connected to motors that could adjust the car's steering so that it could continue to follow the wire below, very much like the Guide-O-Matic that I talked about earlier. Meanwhile, over at RCA, another smarty pants was working on this challenge. This would be Vladimir Zworykin, which some of you people may know as one of the pioneers who played a a really big part in the development of television. In fact, depending upon whom you ask, it was Zworykin, not Farmsworth, who was pioneer of TV. But honestly, it's a very complicated story. And I've talked about it before on Tech Stuff, so I'm not going to go into it here. But back to driverless cars, his concept included embedding circuits in the roads that would be able to sense vehicles magnetically. And his vision had the circuits identifying the speed and position of vehicles, which would provide information to a centralized system that could then send out instructions to specific cars in order to manage traffic. And his idea turned out to be impractical for widespread deployment for autonomous cars. However, it did become sort of the foundation for car sensing loops that are under many intersections. They're used to help control traffic lights. Those loops that can detect if there's a vehicle on top of it through the electromagnetic effect and thus send a signal to the traffic lights that they should switch over soon so that they change the direction of traffic. That's pretty cool. A key component in many of these concepts was that the system for control lay outside 
of the vehicle itself. It required some sort of larger centralized system to handle things, and the cars would respond to commands from that system. A car might have some components aboard it to help with this, but for the most part, the important elements were external to the vehicle. So why was that? Why were we thinking outside the car? Well, keep in mind that before 1947, we did not have transistors. So electronics were very large and bulky. And even the 1947 transistor was not a practical component that you would incorporate into a finished product. So it would be a few years before transistors would really play an important role in consumer technology. And miniaturization was just getting started in the 50s and 60s. So computers were enormous machines that would take up at least a desk, but sometimes an entire room. So driving, because it's such a complicated task meant it wasn't really practical to create a fully autonomous car. The computer you would need to calculate all the different decisions that would be made in order to drive a vehicle would be bigger than the car was. It made more sense to look outside the vehicle for the components that would be needed for a driverless automobile and send commands to a car that would be more like a dumb terminal would be for a supercomputer. Experts recognized the potential for autonomous systems. In particular, many engineers believed a good system would save lives and prevent injuries as we became accustomed to traveling at higher speeds. There was a legit fear that people were driving too quickly to be able to react safely in the event of an emergency. In 1960, Norbert Wiener, a mathematician at MIT, he's also known as the father of cybernetics, said, quote, by the time we are able to react to our senses and stop the car which we are driving, it may already have run head-on into a wall, end quote. He was advocating for some sort of feedback system that could react in a fraction of the time humans can. And he had a point. Reaction times can average between 150 milliseconds to 300 milliseconds, depending upon the stimuli. And that gets pretty darn fast. I mean, 150 milliseconds, that's not a lot of time. So that's a pretty fast reaction time. However... Let's say that you're driving in a car that's going 60 miles per hour or around 97 kilometers per hour. That means you're traveling at 88 feet per second. Even if your reflexes are on the fast side, that 150 milliseconds, it means you'd travel 13 feet before you'd even start to do anything. You would see something happen to you, and by the time you were able to start touching the brake, you've already traveled 13 feet. Also... If you're traveling 60 miles an hour, you're in a vehicle. The vehicle has a pretty hefty mass. You got a lot of inertia to deal with, too. You're not going to stop on a dime. It's going to take you time and therefore distance to stop. So the thought was if we could build out vehicles that could react for us much more quickly than we ourselves can react, and that these vehicles could monitor conditions that surround the car at all times, not just what's happening at whatever you happen to be focusing on at that moment, wouldn't that be great? And we will revisit that idea in a couple of episodes when we start talking about the arguments for autonomous cars. We'll also talk about the arguments against them. I've got a lot more to say about these early concepts in autonomous cars, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. You know, it would be great if our cars could watch after us. But the researchers, engineers, and mechanics of the 60s were running into huge design challenges, and progress was pretty slow. 
money for autonomous systems was running low, as well as the automotive industry began to dedicate funds toward developing technology that would help mitigate human error. So in other words, the tech to take human error out of the equation, that is to make driverless cars, was really complicated and beyond our ability to to realize at that time. So instead, companies shifted to, well, human error is going to happen. We can't take it out of the equation. So let's figure out how to have human error make the least negative impact possible. So for that reason, we saw money instead being dedicated to the development of other technologies, stuff like seat belts, airbags, anti-lock brake systems. And it would stay that way throughout the 1960s and 1970s. It really wasn't until the 1980s that we started seeing serious work and experimentation in driverless systems going again for land-based vehicles. Keep in mind, we had had things like, you know, uh, automated pilots for a long time. That was a relatively simple problem to solve compared to cars. Cars continued to be a difficult problem. Now, one of the engineers who did very important work in the 1980s was a guy named Ernst Dickmans from Germany. He ran a lab at uh, Bundeswehr University in Munich, Germany. And he started out as an aerospace engineer. So super smart guy. But he had ambitions to work on creating a way for vehicles to be able to see their surroundings and then react to them. His work would provide the foundation for tons of innovation in dynamic computer vision. So in the 1980s, he and his research team took a van that was manufactured by Mercedes-Benz and began to customize it for driverless operation. Now, according to Dickmans, the university sort of just let him do this because he had a reputation of being brilliant. So they said, well, he's a smart guy. Let him do what he does. So his team refitted this van with various systems that would be able to control steering, uh, acceleration, braking. They also outfitted the vehicle with a computer system to process information and then sensors and cameras to gather information. So you have these sensors and cameras that bring in data, send it to a computer, the computer processes the data, and then sends commands to the various control systems to change the behavior of the vehicle. That's your basic concept behind the modern autonomous car. So they incorporated technology that could detect the steering angle, brake pressure, temperature, acceleration in both latitudinal and longitudinal directions, and more. Uh, the camera was actually a pair of cameras mounted on swivels that could move along two axes in order to focus on specific points within the field of view. And they called the experiment V-A-M-O-R-S, VAMORS, with a big V, big M, big R. So alternating caps and lowercase. Sticking a camera on a car is one thing, right? Anyone can really do that. Teaching a computer to interpret images from that camera is another thing entirely. And in the 1980s, it normally would take a computer several minutes to analyze a single image in any meaningful way. And even that was fairly limited compared to what we can do today. So to be useful in a driving scenario, you needed something dramatically better than that. A computer would have to analyze many images per second, like 10 images per second, not one image every 10 minutes. So how do you fix that problem? That's an enormous challenge. Well, Dickman's solution was to limit what the car was actually looking at. And so he took human eyesight as kind of a, a, a source of inspiration. 
You see, we're only really able to focus on a relatively small part of our vision. Everything else that's in our field of view is there, but it's not really in focus. So we concentrate on whatever we have deemed to be important at that moment. It might be traffic ahead of us or an incoming soccer ball kicked at our heads or whatever it may be. So Dickman's thought, hey, if I limit what the computer system is focused on and I let it ignore everything else, then I limit the amount of data that needs to be processed and everything speeds up as a result. So he focused on finding shortcuts, such as programming the computer to only really look at stuff like road markings and to ignore other things. His work was dedicated to creating an early driverless system that could function on an empty stretch of road in the early days. So it wasn't really important to worry about other things that your average driver would have to worry about, like other vehicles or obstacles. He was just concentrating on how can I make a system that will reliably follow a road without having a driver behind the wheel. He was building the foundational blocks at that time. Dickman's also sped up the computation process by eliminating the need for the computer to save images. So it was really just analyzing and responding to each image and then conveniently kind of forgetting about them. His techniques paid off with some early demonstrations, but they relied heavily on predictable and reliable components like those road markings. But if the road markings were obscured or if they were absent, then the car would start to drift out of its lane. It didn't know quote-unquote, where it was supposed to be, and it might just continue to wander on whatever steering direction it was in before it lost track of the road markings. And we're talking about a five-ton van that his team had been testing. So that's potentially a real danger. Now, to be fair, they were testing it on unoccupied stretches of road. So at least the potential for catastrophe was severely limited. They worked on, like, uh, the unopened stretches of the Autobahn, for example. So it was more safe than what I'm making it sound like, especially since this was new road. So the, the times when the, uh, the road markings were uh, not detectable were rare. Dickman's work would become a part of a huge project, much bigger than just autonomous cars, called the Eureka Framework, and Eureka is still around today, but this was sort of a, a European Union kind of thing before there was a European Union. So Eureka is a pan-European research and development funding organization. It's meant to make sure that European nations remain competitive with other countries, namely countries like Japan and the United States. For several years, Dickmans and his team were working on refining this driverless car technology, and that culminated in demonstrations that happened in 1994 and 1995. The 94 one happened in Paris, France. Dickmans had a huge challenge ahead of him. Daimler, with whom he was working, wanted his team to equip passenger cars, Daimler passenger cars, with this driverless technology, and they intended for the team to have one of these cars navigate a three-lane highway in public traffic, being able to make automated changes of lane and everything, while carrying real live human passengers. And his team would only have a couple of years to accomplish this goal before this 94 demo. After a brief consideration, Dickmans agreed to this challenge and he got to work. And in October 1994, 
His team picked up several important people at the Charles de Gaulle airport and took them to a highway and then flipped the automobiles, not literally, but they flipped them to (laughs) autonomous mode. And both of the cars that were used in this demonstration still had human drivers sitting in the driver's seat. They still had their hands on the wheel, but they weren't putting any pressure on the wheel. They weren't turning the wheel. They just had their hands there in case something should happen. So they would occasionally take their hands away from the wheel to show that the cars were, in fact, driving themselves and that they were just there for safety's sake. In 1995, his team took an altered vehicle on an autonomous trip from Bavaria to Denmark. That's more than 1,000 miles or 1,700 kilometers. The car reached speeds of up to 109 miles per hour or 175 kilometers per hour. So pretty impressive for an autonomous car. Now, despite these remarkable achievements, the technology was still too primitive for widespread use. It depended heavily on predictable factors. Anything outside of that was more of a challenge, particularly obstacle detection. They didn't build it in to be consumer-friendly, so you had these large computer systems that were inside the vehicles themselves. So it was an exciting advancement in autonomous car technology, but it wasn't far enough along for consumer or practical use. And so the world would have to wait a bit longer for tech to evolve to give autonomous cars another go. And this is related to a concept called AI winter, which is tied into the idea of hype cycles. And AI winter is named that way because it's considered to be the funding equivalent of a nuclear winter. And it describes a time when there's a growing reluctance to fund AI projects. Generally speaking, this is how the pattern tends to play out. You get some super smart people making some cool advances in artificial intelligence. And those advances may one day have practical application in numerous technologies. But early on, we're talking about truly experimental work that's exciting, but not necessarily practical at the moment. However, word of that work gets around. Maybe the company sponsoring the research releases a big press release that implies breakthroughs are closer than they really are. Maybe the media picks up the story and they run with it. Enthusiasm among the general populace grows and funding gets easier to secure. But as time passes and it becomes clear that in reality, these sort of things take a lot of time and they take a lot of work and they take a lot of money to make progress in fields like artificial intelligence, then people get less enchanted. Typically starting with the media, you get these stories that are the equivalent of where's my flying car? And the narrative changes from think about how the cool, how cool the future is going to be to why isn't the future here already? So enthusiasm for the field drops and then funding drops. And that in turn sets back the field even further, which delays any other big breakthroughs in the process. Eventually, this part of the cycle comes to an end, if you're lucky, and then enthusiasm can begin to build again. AI has experienced several of these cycles, and we've also seen the same thing in other fields as well. Virtual reality is a field that leaps to mind. Dickman's work was really exciting, and it had even survived one AI winter in the late 1980s and got all the way through the mid-90s. But at that time, the funding was really becoming scarce, And his work had really gone about as far as it could go based upon the sophistication of technology at the time. And so it kind of came to an end. And his pioneer work was largely forgotten for many years. In our next episode, we'll look at the resurgence of interest in autonomous cars and how the U.S. Department of Defense got involved. 
But for now, we're going to conclude this. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, or you've got any stories you want to share about autonomous cars, or maybe there's some guest I should have on the show, anything like that, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can go to techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website with all the information about the show and other ways to get in touch with me. Don't forget to go to our store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.